the way I see it is almost like most entrepreneurs, we don't admit or know that a brick wall is there until we run into it. And I think for me, at least that's very true when it came to burnout. Everyone around me probably saw it coming. Tons of people I remember were saying like, do you maybe just need to like chill out a bit? Do you have to work late every single night? Like, do your clients really care about you that much that you need to be working this intensely? But all of it just was going over my head. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people. We talk to these people about risk. Risk they've taken in their lives, risk they've taken in their careers, when they paid off and when they didn't. Alice, there's a phrase that I've seen you use online um, and it's a really, really interesting one that I want to understand a bit more about, which is accidental entrepreneurialism. So where does your journey with entrepreneurialism start and why do you see it as accidental? Oh, good question. So I think for me, you know, it's easy looking back, isn't it, to kind of slot things into place and create this really nice narrative. Like if I had that hat on, I'd be like, you know, from a young age, I was always wanting to like do my own little projects. You know, age 15, I remember I was making these wooden signs, you know, like live, laugh, love mm-hmm. kind of vibe. That was me. Um, and, you know, I'd sell them to my mum's friends and flog them on Facebook and Etsy. But I think looking back, that probably wasn't me being an entrepreneur. I think that was just boredom and a desire for some money. Maybe that is what makes us entrepreneurs. <laughs> Who knows? That's another topic within itself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that is was that the motive at the time that was making a bit of extra money on the side? I think so. Yeah. And I've also always had this real desire to prove people wrong Mm -hmm. and I clearly remember and it was probably a very kind of small thing but to me at the at the time it felt massive my dad had lended me some money to go and buy like spray paints and sand paper and whatever else I needed I was probably like 50 pounds but I remember my brothers being really cynical about like oh just another one of her projects you're funding or like that's never going to take off and for me that was like I'm so motivated by the desire to prove people wrong mm. and I remember the day I'd like done a stall at a conference and I'd sold loads of these signs and I had like 200 pounds cash and mm-hmm. I literally took a picture of me handing that cash over to my dad Amazing. to send to my brothers because that that was my motivation which I'm yeah <laughs> so it's a, a really interesting one that the motivation part and I don't know if you've ever found this before, but for me, I totally agree with you that the uh, everyone has a bit of a chip on their shoulder. I think when you when you're going into something which requires this level of focus and sacrifice, like you need something that's really going to push you. I also think it's very very easy to let those motivations be something uh, negative in that way, proving someone wrong. I'm exactly the same. Have you ever had the concern about like, okay, if I can, you know drop the the drop that motivation because I want to feel a bit more positive that it's going to negatively impact your drive in business it's an interesting question I don't know if you can be driven by the negative on a long-term basis Mm -hmm. like I definitely noticed for myself that kind of negative motivation is really really prevalent at the beginning of anything Mm -hmm. so to actually get to the accidental entrepreneur part the part where I kind of fell into business was when I had just quit school early and I got this opportunity to become freelance that didn't really understand and kind of turned into a business owner overnight without ever intending to. Um, And even that decision was still fueled by that desire Mm -hmm. to prove people wrong. I remember my parents, my teachers, people at school, you know, everyone's like, why are you leaving school? You're set to get good A-levels. Like, what are you doing? And again, that for me was the best motivation. 
But I don't know that I could still be motivated by that, you know, seven years on. I think for me, that really drives me to kind of get started because, I mean, it's the start where it's hardest, right? Mm. And it's the start where no one is clapping you. Like nobody like cheered me on for quitting school early, but it's amazing how many people two years on when things look shiny and successful will be like, oh my gosh, that's so impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think for me, that kind of negative motivation really helps me at the beginning of anything, you know, new business, new project. But then I think at some point, for me at least, I have to then get connected to almost more of the pull. Mm. Like a push helps you begin, but it's a pull that's going to help you sustain something over a long period of time. Um, I, th- I obviously feel like my brain would be a bad place to be if I was still mulling over the teachers that told me I couldn't start a business. Like, I don't know if that's the best way <laughs> yeah. to be thinking for, you know, seven plus years. So do you find that a big part of the journey is uncovering the purpose for that specific mission? Or is it about just your own drivers and motivation? Because, for example, I see some businesses where so clearly their North Star metric is something which they are... Um, which they feel a lot of purpose for. They feel like it's a mission. For example, one of my friend's companies is um, geared around stopping people or trying to reduce people's use of plastic bottles. So for them, like their North Star metric is the amount of bottles saved. And that's like, okay, I get that immediately. I can see why you'd be so driven for that. I can see why you feel like you're really having so much impact through what you're doing. What's your advice to someone then who maybe started a business to prove people wrong and, and started people with those motivations? How do they go and find their purpose? The way I see it is that purpose kind of exists in two different ways. So we have our internal purpose and then our external purpose. And I think what's sometimes unhelpful is in business, we talk so much about external purpose, right? Like you were saying there, wanting to save the planet, less plastic bottles. Great, super clear, super compelling, also motivating to other people, external uh, purpose. But not all of us begin a business in that way. And also if we overly focus on external purpose, we can easily ignore our own needs as a founder, as an entrepreneur. And at the end of the day, if your needs aren't met for a long enough time, if they're not met, like you're going to burn out. Interesting. So for me, the way that I look at it is, yes, we have an external purpose. You know, for me, that's around helping business owners, normalizing challenges, blah, blah, blah. But also my internal purpose is really valid too. Mm. And I think it's the internal purpose that sometimes feels a bit selfish, you know, to do with finances, time, fulfillment, having your ego stroked, Mm. being known, you know, all those things that we don't always want to admit matter to us ultimately matter a huge amount and I I notice a lot of the time at the beginning of people's business journeys the internal purpose feels clearer Mm -hmm. particularly if people start their businesses because they hate their job or because they start a family and suddenly they can't work alongside it like if you start a business because of a problem you faced it's pretty obvious your internal purpose is going to be the big driver at first I don't think great businesses only have internal purpose though because I think that's when it feels empty and self-serving and we want to build communities we want to build brands so Mm. I think both have equal importance and both should operate in different ways Mm. um and I think if people are ever struggling to figure out what those two things are I mean action is the best source of clarity right you'll figure out what your purpose is pretty quickly by doing stuff that doesn't feel like it so you know don't sit with a piece of paper just go and do something (laughs) yeah I really really like that and I think you're so right that having a clearly definable and um communicable external purpose is going to be so important to get people excited by your mission people who uh, are going to come join the company come work with you even partners customers at the early stage right they've got to be able to buy into that yeah. too um and and with your businesses uh and businesses that you help as well how central to getting the so if i've got a, a business that i have the right internal motivation for 
I'm yet to understand the external purpose. How vital is that to understanding your voice and your brand and your ability to actually market in the first place? And, and what would you suggest to someone who's maybe got a business where they, they feel really passionate about it and they feel really excited by it, but that they've still struggled to get that, that purpose across? Because I think, um, you know, my advice to entrepreneurs always get going exactly in the way that you're talking about, really make sure you take action, start speaking to people. But when you don't know what it is that you're trying to communicate, it can be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clear external messaging comes from clear internal mm-hmm. thoughts, right? And in answer to your question of how important is that to all those other things, you know, your tone of voice, your visuals, mm. your, like it is pivotal. I almost think of purpose like the center of an onion okay. and like every single layer, stick with this analogy, is, um, you know, another part of your business and marketing strategy. Like if that central piece isn't there or it's wonky, like everything that you try and build on top of it is also going to be slightly off. Mm-hmm. It's almost a bit like, you know, kind of princess and the pea. Mm-hmm. If you imagine what people see of your business and feel of your business is like the very top of that mattress. If your purpose is off, it's going to be that pea at the bottom mm. that makes its way all the way up to the surface. Mm. Right. I think part of this conversation is acknowledging like perfect purpose doesn't exist. Right. It's easy to look at those companies that have that like, oh, super shiny, super compelling, incredible mission and be like, oh, I wish mine was like that cool. Comparison of purpose isn't going to get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got to acknowledge like your purpose is probably never going to feel done or perfect. That's kind of the point. It'll always be evolving. Um, And in answer to your other question of kind of when do you, almost when do you know when you have enough of a clear purpose, I guess is the question. I think it really depends on the kind of stakes that you're, playing at Mm. like I probably I'd say I work with two very different types of clients one type would be kind of solo business owners Mm -hmm. you know your graphic designers photographers um, consultants for those guys I'm always like well just take some action like do some free work get yourself out there you'll figure out that purpose your purpose doesn't need to be huge in a business like that absolutely you know my purpose as a consultant is not to change the world because I can't I shouldn't it doesn't make sense for a company of one Mm -hmm. however though I don't think that advice can necessarily apply to your kind of VC backed startups Mm -hmm. who you know if you're looking to raise investment if you're looking to spend hundreds of thousands building your kind of MVP I think you probably need a bit of a clearer purpose in there than than maybe those kind of solo business owners do. And probably you're the best person to give the advice on how to get that. Well, I think it's a a really interesting one. And I love the idea of iterating on purpose because I think for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, sometimes there's guilt without knowing your purpose. It's that I want to build, I want to do all these things, I want to make money, whatever it might be. So I think the idea of iterating on purpose is a really, really powerful one Uh, because it's difficult to arrive at purpose, right? It's difficult to just create that external uh, drive in that way. So I think that's a really interesting one. And another really good point that different types of businesses which are seeking different returns or, or, or seeking different management styles, obviously you can afford to take more or less risk you know, depending. And how did you come across your purpose? I took action and felt the opposite of it, I think is what's true for me. And I noticed that a lot of the time, you know, you saying earlier of sometimes in the beginning, especially we're more driven by the negative. Mm -hmm. I think that's true when we're getting clarity a lot of the time as well. You know, I do a lot of work helping people figure out what I call like your inner compass, which I see as like your vision, your mission, your purpose, and your values. Four key areas that if you have clarity in, everything in business becomes a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Four key areas that I will say are always evolving, never feel perfect or done, like you said. Um, But especially the kind of values piece of that, you know, I'm often asking people like, what does your company stand for? Mm. What are those values? So we can 
communicate them and make that a reason people choose you. And often that question means, you know, blank face. Yeah. And they say nothing. I go, oh, I don't know. But then if I go, hey, what really pisses you off in your industry? Oh, yeah, you know. What that. do you hate? What company <laughs> would you really, really be upset mm. to be compared to? It's amazing how quickly those answers come. And if you flip the negative on its head, often you find mm-hmm. the truth, right? So for me, that was definitely true. When I kind of fell into business, I was 17 years old. I didn't know a thing about business. I started off as a social media manager. I think I was chosen because I was 17 and they thought, she's young. She knows social media. (laughs) Um, Figured it out as I went along. Very much a kind of fake it till you make it. Start Mm -hmm. of a business journey. Very, very grateful that I kind of landed in in an industry and in a way of working that I just adored. But I made so many mistakes in the early days. And whilst those mistakes were really painful and quite costly, they all were just nudging me closer to my mission. So like I knew at the start, I loved marketing, I loved business, I loved social media. But in the first year of business, all my clients were big corporates based in London. Okay. And it, I didn't realize it at the time, but I ended up burning out after my first year of business. And one of the biggest things I realized was, oh, it's not what I'm doing, it's who it's for. Mm. I don't really care about making people super rich. I care about helping people make a ton of money if that then is going to lead to some kind of other purpose or impact for them. And so for me, the purpose that I kind of run my business with now, I think has literally taken seven years of almost like a pinball machine hitting the sides, hitting the sides until you kind of get a little bit closer every time to where you're going. Um, So yeah, I'd say now I'm a lot better at not making those mistakes Mm -hmm. the hard way, but the first two, three years of business for me were basically just a, a, a big run of mistakes, which led me to a place of feeling a bit battered, mm-hmm. but very clear. <laughs> so talk to me about burnout, because I think it's another concept which entrepreneurs really struggle with. And sometimes when you're so in the weeds and you feel the level of, of responsibility that you do, either to investors, to early employees, um, it can be very difficult to recognize those signs of, of burnout. And it happened to me during um, Real Sport, my last company. Mm. It must have been about uh, 18 months into launching I think we launched in in February. So this was the the next December. And I could just, I couldn't go into the office. It just got to December. I was like, oh, I actually can't go in today. And it was just weird. It almost felt verging on agoraphobic in terms of not being able to leave the house. And I was just like, oh, I've got to this point of insane burnout. So what did that look like for you? And and how do you help guide your clients who who might be facing the same? That's really interesting. And I want to ask you so many questions about about your burnout experience as well. But yeah, I think very similar to you, the the way I see it is almost like most entrepreneurs, we don't admit or know that a brick wall is there until we run into it. Mm. And I think for me, at least that's very true when it came to burnout. Everyone around me probably saw it coming. Mm. Tons of people I remember were saying like, do you maybe just need to like chill out a bit? Do you have to work late every single night? Like, do your clients really care about you that much that you need to be working this intensely? But all of it just was going over my head. You know, I was so obsessed with the growth and the shiny stuff and saying yes. And I was just on this kind of hype that, yeah, none of that was really something I cared about. I wasn't even aware of it. But even Mm -hmm. if I was made aware of it, it just didn't matter to me. So for me, I definitely had to learn that lesson the hard way. And I, almost everyone I meet has a burnout story. Um, and I don't know if this has been the experience for you, but I found I've never quite burned out in that way again. Yes. But it doesn't mean that I still don't get close to the edge of that, you know, road or cliff or whatever you want to see it as. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think you're right. It's because you, you probably get so um, 
phased by the initial experience that as, mm. as you start approaching it's like okay i gotta take the foot off the pedal a little bit more uh but yeah that first burnout's really weird and uh maybe it is uh something which comes from being young entrepreneurs just that you know the fact that we don't have experience of driving yeah. ourselves to that point uh and especially it depends on who's telling you right especially when so many conversations you have at the start are negative 90 percent of people will tell you it's not going to work for this reason you're doing the wrong thing if they're the same people to tell you that you're burning out you're also more likely to be like yeah well fuck you i'm not burning out exactly like there is nothing more infuriating than someone telling me to rest when i'm feeling stressed like (laughs) it happens all the time even like last week i was on a book deadline and basically wrote my whole book in three days because i wow it's not impressive. It was very poor planning on my side. I feel like that's um, still very impressive. Even poor planning aside, that's still very, very impressive. A lot of caffeine and no Wi-Fi. That was my secret. Um, but the amount of people that when I shared that were like, take it easy, be kind. To, and I'm like, stop. No, like I don't need or what? Like I can't. There's something called a, a contract with my name in it and I have to do this. Set, like, no. And I think part of that is me just being slightly stubborn and I don't like being told what to do. Mm -hmm. But you're so right. I think we often have to learn the lessons through action. Because also when you're, especially in the early days of business, like you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Like looking back, I could have saved past Alice a ton of time, made her a ton more money. I made like every mistake in the book, like not saving for tax, Mm -hmm. not having any client boundaries, not having set packages, not doing my pricing from a strategic standpoint, not having contracts. Like I would literally list everything I did wrong. Um, And obviously looking back, I'm like, well, of course I burnt out. But you you don't know what you don't know. And I think of probably slightly what makes us successful at what we do is that we have this just innate desire to just keep going on the path that we're on yes um and i wonder if we listen to the way other people suggested yes sometimes that would work in our favor but if i'd have then listened to everything everyone would have suggested that probably wouldn't have worked out in the long run yeah especially when there is so much negativity at the early stage you know as i said and i genuinely believe this 90 percent of the people that you pitch your idea to will especially people who know you will tell you it's not going to work for this reason or you're, you're making those mistakes, which makes it so difficult to then learn from the 10% of things which are actually valuable yes. to get. Um, and I think that's why making mistakes yourself is always going to be the most valuable teacher. And although it's a shame because, you know, we, we don't live long enough to make all of the mistakes, but we can make enough as long as we take big enough risks early on uh, to really help guide us, even as we get to you know 30s where life is still very much ahead of us i say now as a 31 year old i used to feel like that was already over the hill but well you know it's okay i've, I've accepted my age now um one thing that I, I wanted to ask you is um reading a bit online about your desire to bring things into the the real world as well so whether it be you know events places that you're bringing people together when did that become part of your purpose because i think as, as young entrepreneurs like more and more do we think about how everything needs to be digital and everything needs to be online what made you want to start bringing people back together again in reality so it actually links slightly i think to that burnout period where when i reflected obviously you know months after kind of getting out of that initial headspace i realized that one of the biggest reasons i burned out was isolation mm. I will say, you know, I know I just went on a rant about how I don't take advice from people. The one group of people that my ears are slightly open to is people that are in the world with me. Mm-hmm. Like, what's that advice that's like, you know, only take advice from people that are in the ring with you? Mm-hmm. So for me, like trusted business friends, they have total permission to speak into my business from an external perspective. I'm not necessarily going to absolutely do what they say, sure. but I'm way more open to that than 
you know, my cousin that I saw at that Christmas party yeah. once. Um, <laughs> so I think looking back, I realized if I'd have just been surrounded by a few business owners, like I didn't know anyone who ran a business in that first year, let alone any women or anyone who was young. So I just didn't have anyone to learn from, to chat with, to get that community from. So I think it was around a kind of 1920, I realized like community is going to be the key to this business being sustainable. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize at the time as well was community was going to be my biggest secret to success. Like for me, starting my podcast five and a half years ago, the biggest thing it's built me is a network. And that network, like I could, I can't even list all the things that the people I've met through my business have enabled me to achieve. Mm. And I'm not networking to get opportunities, sure. but I can totally see how everything that I, I kind of get the privilege to do now has come from an element of community. So I mm -hmm. think for me, it started off with a bit of selfish intent of like, I need friends, I need yeah. people, how do we build this community? And then also starting to realize, okay, not everyone you know, wants to create their own community. Some people just want to slot in yep. and just go and kind of have a space where they can meet others. So yeah, it was something I first did, hosted retreats and workshops back in 2019. Uh, obviously the good old pandemic got yeah. in the way of some big plans in 2020, but yeah, it's just always been a focus for me. And I realized that for my community, they often don't need someone to tell them what to do. They just need community and support. Mm. Like the events that I host, yes, I sell them as a workshop or a panel event or a retreat. But like the bit where I'm talking for an hour is like the least valuable part. Mm. What's valuable is when they're stood in line to get a drink and they spark up a conversation with someone different. Or like I've had people come to my events and then they've started businesses together. Amazing. Um, we even had a couple meet at one of my events. Wow. I do think they've now broken up because they've stopped posting on social media. So <laughs> I dare not ask because they are one of my biggest <sighs> success stories in life. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, th I think community is, is fundamental. And what is it about um that community which you thought you know what because there's so many online communities but that made you realize you know no this has got to be something which we we bring out of the virtual space and, and actually bring people together in a mm. in a physical way because i think um with all the the you know massive amount of of ai tooling i think there's going to be a real crisis of consciousness very very soon in terms of people feel even more disconnected, people feel very, very isolated. Um, but in many ways, it's easier to do. It's easier to just keep things online. So what was it about actually bringing people together physically that 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 made sense to your community? Back in the day, I feel like having an online community was what made you interesting or unique. It was mm -hmm. so different. I was like, oh, you've got a Facebook group. Mm -hmm. You've got a whatever the other apps are that people use for people to chat to each other. Now I think it's the opposite. Mm. Like so much has gone online and there's obviously huge wins related to that, right? Like I love the online space, wouldn't be where I am without it. But there's something to be said about just proper human connection. Mm. You know, we could be sat on Zoom right now, but I would bet if we did this recording on Zoom, where knowing each other might take us over the next year would be a, a very different story. Yes, absolutely. I just think human connection is is always done in person. Like mm. online is great for visibility or even just kind of keeping connections, you know, topped up. But I think that just n nothing beats people in person. And I think from a more kind of strategic perspective for the people hosting communities, it's the easiest way to stand out. Like people are craving abilities or opportunities to connect in person. Mm -hmm. If you are willing to take the risk and create the space for people to do that, I think it pays dividends in the yeah. long run. No one wants to host events in the business space. Everyone wants to attend them. So if you've got a couple of thousand pounds that you don't mind losing, be the one that hosts it. 
really interesting. Um, and I think the power of community is, is incredible, especially when you are thinking of launching a product, launching some sort of service, a community of like-minded people who you can bring that to, iterate with them, uh, really build in public is, is so powerful. So what's your advice to anyone looking to build a community? Where would you start? Ooh, I think the first thing you've got to define is what does your community stand for? Mm-hmm. Because the, the idea of community is people feeling a part of something, right? No one wants to feel a part of a product. Yes. No one wants to feel a part of a service. No one wants to feel a part of someone's mission to get rich. Mm-hmm. People want to feel a part of a movement, of a mission. You know, it comes back to what we spoke about right at the start of this conversation of purpose. If you can find a way to make your purpose relevant and interesting and matter to other people, that's what your community should be built around. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got to bring that into then all of the things that you create. That should kind of change all of your decision-making because you then need to show up in a way that so clearly communicates and stands for those things that people want to be a part of it. I think as well we've got to think about community building not like we're speaking down to people, Mm -hmm. but we're creating this almost Mm peer-to-peer conversation. I feel like old-school marketing, you know, is stood up on a stage shouting out into a crowd of people Building community and brand is about getting off the stage and sitting around a a table with those people. So I think community or building community, yeah, you've got to know what you stand for, but then also you've got to act with it. You've got to ask questions. You've got to create an open space. You've got to create feedback loops. You've got to get to know your people. Um, If people feel anonymous, they're going to act like anonymous people. Mm. When people feel anonymous, they don't refer, they don't engage, they're not loyal. And I think with the competition rising, and it will only continue to do so over the next, you know, decades, building a community is going to start becoming kind of crucial currency for brands that want to survive long term. That's really, really interesting. Uh, I love that idea of, of, you know, if you don't want people to act in an anonymous way, give them identity. And it's really interesting because community, you know, you don't traditionally associate it with that individuality, right? It's the collective, but it, it. When you can have community where it's about engagement rather than just, you know, passive consumption, obviously it becomes so much more powerful. So it's not purely about education because when a lot of people think community, it's it can be one too many rather than many too many. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a really, really interesting concept that, you know, community requires engagement rather than just consumption in order to be a real community. And and which tools do you use to, to manage your communities? I always try and give um, founders listening to this practical advice. So so what does that management stack look like for you and your community? Oh, management stack. That makes it sound so <laughs> fancy. Um, I'm super basic. Like in terms of any kind of way of like tracking, it's all spreadsheets and mm-hmm. boring things like that. One of my favorite tools actually I've been using recently, I mean, it's not going to be a shock that I'll bring it up, but ChatGPT. Sure. Particularly loving using it for research purposes. Okay. So like I was saying then, one of the biggest things with community is people feeling heard and doing things that are then going to kind of matter to those people. Mm-hmm. So for me, one of the biggest habits to build if you want to build community is a, a feedback loop. And a feedback loop is is a loop in that we're not just asking for feedback, but we actually do something with it and take it in. So something I'm always looking to do within my business, generally on a quarterly basis, is some kind of research exercise. Mm-hmm. And I recently did a big survey with my community and then used ChatGPT to kind of analyze it, give me key findings, then do some kind of research off the back of those findings. And that was like a game changer because I think sometimes people are scared to kind of open the you know, corridor of communication because they think, oh, we can't handle all of that yeah. feedback and all of those opinions and thoughts. Well, like use something artificial intelligence wise to kind of do some of that legwork for you. Um, so that's one of my favorite tools to help Very people cool. build communities. And then, I mean, everything else is just me and my little thumbs on the social media apps. Yeah. <laughs> 
Fantastic. It's a, it's a great use case of, of ChatGPT, not one which I'd considered before, but um, every day my mind is blown by, uh, by a new fantastic use case there. It's crazy, isn't it? I was listening to your episode with Graham from Boomtown on, yep. the, on the way here, and I mm-hmm. found what you were talking about in that episode around AI really interesting of kind yeah. of, I think it's like seeing it as a tool, isn't it? Like it's not going to replace anything or anyone, but actually if you embrace it, it's going to make your life so much easier. I'm, so- yeah. I, I almost can't learn about it anymore because it kind of overwhelms me. I have to just use it in small ways. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a young entrepreneur, I'm uh, I'm very keen to understand, are you generally positive about the future? And I think when you talk about AI, you're talking about the future, like the two are so intertwined that we can't separate away from this idea. But are you positive about the future? Yes, because I'm positive about people. Mm. You know, yes, robots and technology but let's be honest like it's people that build that Mm -hmm. and people that control that I'm sure there's a way that those things could take over I don't want to think about that I'm not interested in that reality Mm -hmm. because that scares me um but yeah I am overly positive but I'd say I'm positive about the communities I'm in Mm -hmm. because I trust and know the values that sit at the core of those communities there are many, many spheres of this world and of the human experience that I feel slightly less positive about, mm-hmm, particularly, sure. you know, politically and socioeconomically. But yeah, in terms of the world that I'm in, I think young entrepreneurs particularly are so leading the way mm. in terms of bringing up the bar. You know, I think the bar is just getting raised with every new founder that comes in. You know, the bar is raised of like, what do we expect from companies that we interact with Mm -hmm. what do we expect from governments what do we expect from kind of the world that we interact with there's so many businesses now that I think are on a mission to change the world not just make money Mm. so yeah when I when I log on to LinkedIn and it's a good day on LinkedIn and there's some nice posts to look at yeah I look at it and think yeah I feel optimistic that's great because because I I really share that as well and I think um you know for, for all the negativity there is in the world the reality is um people who find their purpose, people who can get excited about working together and people who can take back control of their lives in terms of, you know, just ignoring is the wrong word, but seeing that negativity for what it is Mm -hmm. and not letting it become consuming and getting excited by all of the opportunities that we have to collaborate and to to lift each other up, I think are in a really, really good place. I think Mm. in a really, really good place. I think I, I, I... we had a very interesting podcast last week with uh, a founder that I invested in called Thomas Panton, um, who's building something within sustainability and the environment and love the mission there. I think there is there are certainly challenging things in terms of my really long term outlook when, when it comes to the environment. And I think those are things that as positive as we can be, you know, do keep me up at night sometimes mm-hmm. um, thinking about, you know, where the climate goes and, and thinking about the very, very uh, and sometimes it feels like increasingly um rapid uh consequences of that um but for the most part the things that we can control as humans Mm. i think i think we're about to hit a really really good good moment and i think that people are really waking up in a way that they weren't a few years ago and i don't know if this is because um people are just becoming more confident or people are just wanting to make things happen for themselves in a really aggressive like positive aggressive way and you know not taking no for an answer and not you know buying into the narrative that i shouldn't be in this position till i'm 40 or 50 years old so i think there's so many good things there um but but i'm glad to hear that you're positive yeah i i do get what you mean though i think you know you you could go down a rabbit hole of looking at the research and Mm. the predictions you know particularly with the the climate and the environment and feel really really bleak Mm -hmm. about the long term and i definitely have those moments and 
yeah, I know this isn't a perfect solution, but I think for me sometimes it is just like, I know that's happening. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm trying to do to change that. And actually, like, is the access to information that we have these days actually healthy? If you think of how communities operated, you know, even 100 years ago, you were maybe vaguely aware of what's happening in another country. Mm. But like some countries didn't even know that other countries existed. So like you understood the particular challenges for your culture. Mm -hmm. I think that's, to me, that's where I focus my energy. I try not to go from one extreme to another and be either hyper aware or like not at all. I care about the changes and the things I need to care about in the kind of communities and spaces I'm in. Um, Obviously in the context of the earth, that technically is still incredibly relevant yeah. to me. But yeah, I just think it's a hard one. Like, is it healthy that in a day we can read 50 news stories mm. about... Well, it's certainly unnatural. Like, it's right? just probably not good for your brain, right? Yeah. But I don't know that, like, what is the solution? Because I don't want to say, don't look at it and don't care. Mm. But then also it's like, okay, well, what can we as the individual do? Is hyper-awareness actually going to mean that we as an individual will massively change it? Mm. It's it's a it's a really it's a fascinating topic. I mean, we could we could go down that rabbit yeah. hole like so easily. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a it's a really interesting one. But I, I I love the idea of taking back control of what you can be in control of, and ultimately that goes back to your values, right? What are the things that you think are important? What are the things that um, because you know I, I'm not necessarily one who believes that every letter of the law is correct. Every you know, rule that has been given to me by society is correct. I, I I totally disagree with that. But if I know my own values and know what I can put into the world and the impact that I can have on individuals and I live by those, then I'm doing what I feel like I can. Yes. So I think it's a, um, a really nice positive note there. So I've got a few questions I want to ask you. Um, what's the single biggest risk you've ever taken and what was the outcome? Probably leaving school at 16. Mm-hmm. That felt quite risky. I don't think I was fully aware of how risky it was. I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't that risky, right? I could have just gone back to school if anything, everything had really gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if now, like if I had someone age 16 who came to me in my same scenario, you know, I've literally got a year left. I'm on track to do pretty okay. Mm-hmm. This opportunity will probably still be here in a year's time. I think what I would say to that 16-year-old is probably like, oh, just do another year. Like, yeah. come on, really? Like, especially because the opportunity was still going to be there in a year's time. The job that I left school for mm-hmm. probably wasn't as um, scarce as I was imagining it to be. But I'm very glad I didn't think about it that analytically because, yeah, if I hadn't have done that, there's no way that I'd be doing what I do now. So I guess you could list every single business success and, and the life that I get to lead now, which I'm very, very privileged to lead back to that Um very risky mm-hmm. decision. And I'm very, very grateful to the people around me that allowed me to do it. You know, I was yeah. 16. I couldn't have done it without my parents, or I could have done it without my parents' consent. I wasn't going to. Mm-hmm. They were understandably a little bit hesitant, but they were ultimately supportive. And um, yeah, very glad I took that risk. But I've got a feeling I've got a bigger risk. Bigger risks are to come. That doesn't feel that risky to me. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, I think that's a, a, a great answer and that must have been a, a massive risk at the time. Um, I think a lot of people I know who dropped out at that age um, certainly do re- re- regret that decision. Mm-hmm. A lot of them really do. Um, but I think it speaks volumes about what you've done with that opportunity of saying, well, I have a year extra, you know, or, or two years extra to really go and make something happen. So I think that's... Um, uh, a really great response. Is there anything that you wish you'd done differently? 
does everyone answer this question by going, oh, but if I change something, then I wouldn't be where I am now? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, we get the whole range of responses. Some people have like, you know, in the same, and maybe we're too young for this, I don't know, but in the same way that, you know, sometimes we've got a chip on our shoulder, I could, there are p things that haunt people a little bit. Just like, no, that thing I should have definitely done differently. Mm. And is there, is there anything that stands out for you? I say there's two things that come to mind. I think the first thing I really do regret is the way burnout impacted my clients. Mm -hmm. because I, very similar burnout story to you. Like literally overnight, I can't get out of bed. Yeah, I'm I'm bed bound for three months. Like that was that was how it was. Couldn't explain it. Didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And like really, really did leave my clients in a bad way. I don't feel proud of that ending. I don't know what I could have done to change that, but I, you know, that's something, you know, when you're falling asleep at night and your brain just mm -hmm. reminds you of all the things you should feel guilty about. That, Constantly. That, that's top on the list. Um, <laughs> but probably the other thing, like if I really could have changed something, something that I don't think has massively helped me at all is a few years back, I remember I put so much pressure on myself to scale. Mm. I'd got the business to six figures, the elusive, oh yeah, you've made it. Um, and then everyone was saying to me, all right, a million. Yeah. And obviously I was like, okay here we go, let's keep going. And it just wasn't right for me at the time. It led me to start to do strategies that just didn't feel good. I wasn't working sustainably. Mm. I wasn't honoring my values in the way that I'd, I, did, I don't do any, didn't do anything bad, nothing illegal, nothing that I'm like regret, but just, you know, when you start to yeah. pursue a goal that isn't yours. Yes. And as a result, it just feels awful. And I, as a result, like even just from going VAT registered, there were tons of challenges that came from that. I've then pursued kind of hyper visibility as a mm -hmm. result of that, got really badly trolled and that kind of knocked me back. So I think I look back and I'm like, actually, if I'd have just kept on the path I was on, which was sustainable, gentle, but in the long run, very, very impactful growth, mm -hmm. I probably would be now a little bit further than where I am. I think Super because I tried to push and it wasn't right, wasn't right timing, wasn't right approach. And it wasn't my goal ultimately. Um, I think it set me back because I basically then had to spend a year or two rebuilding m less so physically more so just mentally mm. um particularly kind of the trolling and and just not feeling good about how I was running my business that took a lot of kind of unlearning and processing so mm. yeah I wish I just put the blinkers on and done it my way but I don't know if you resonate with this but I feel like when you feel like a bit of an accidental business owner or kind of you don't feel like you're prepared for it because you're young I kind of reached a point where I was like okay well I've got myself this far now I need to listen to everyone else yeah and actually, I wish I just kept kept my head down. Yeah. And in it, not in an egotistical way, because I don't know what's best, but just kept doing it mm. my way. Because my way is not going to be right for everyone, but I know it's right for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think you're you're totally correct in that uh, when you run a business, you've got to either make the decision to say I want to do it in the way that's comfortable for me, where I can listen to my gut, listen to my intuition, and be true to that. Um, and there's also businesses that you you can decide to go and run where you realize that because of the uh, goal of people that you partner with, usually investors, that you're going to have to commit to something which may or may not sit with you. And it's impossible to know until you're there. Yeah. Um, but I think being hyper real and being honest with yourself about what you want to do and, and saying, am I going to be comfortable going against my gut? Um, no, then that's great. And and then maybe you should look at running your business mm. this way. And I think that's why the, the hyper-realism part is, is so important. Mm. As an investor, how do you navigate that? Because, you know, I guess it, reality is, right, when you're investing in something or you have investors, like there is a plan that needs to be followed yeah. for that, you know, investment to be agreed upon. Do you have a consciousness as an investor of kind of 
that experience for them or do you almost need to just not consider that too much? Uh, it's, it's a great question. I think you need to address it head on with them and just say, look, if you're trying to build a venture-backed business, understand that it means you're committing to doing whatever you need to do to try and hit 10% month-on-month growth. Yeah. Whatever that means, it's you intense. have to do. Um, but I think it's your responsibility as an investor to educate founders that that is the reality. Now, when I ran my first business, no one educated me on that. As it happens, I was comfortable running a business which was achieving or tr- attempting to achieve at least um, that level of growth. And it did work well. But I, it might have gone horribly. It might have gone really badly. And I, I, for sure, the reason I had that burnout is because I hadn't been prepared for the reality of that journey. So I think absolutely as, as experienced entrepreneurs, as uh, investors, you know, it, it's so important to, to educate mm-hmm. entrepreneurs that if you're going to take money with this return expectation, this is what the journey looks like. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I bet you're background and experience just makes you such a, a nicer and better investor for people to have but uh, yeah. maybe maybe not but I find investment fascinating it's obviously it's never a process I've gone through my second company I just uh, kind of invested in it myself mm-hmm. but I, Angel invested in one company definitely okay. like a, a baby in that world but quite a few of my clients I kind of walk with them as they go through that journey. It's often when they're investing in a bit more strategic support. Mm -hmm. And I so clearly remember my first client that told me like, we've just got our investment. I remember I was like so over the top with my reaction and like, it was all just, this is the best day for you ever. And obviously I'm sure that, you know, that celebration is so important. But now actually when people tell me they've got investment, yes, I celebrate them, but there's also this conversation and feeling of like, okay, cool. Like how do we feel about Mm -hmm. the massive road ahead of you? Like I remember before I understood what, getting investment was actually like I'd, mm-hmm. I'd never seen it before I just thought like oh my gosh you've got millions of pounds yeah your life's better whereas actually now I've, I see friends go through it and I'm like whoa you're like I don't see it as five million in the bank I see it as five million pounds worth of responsibility that you've got for the next x years 100%. and it's not feeling sorry for people but it is that acknowledgement of like yeah that LinkedIn post about raising all that money is a lot behind the scenes that no one would see yeah yeah definitely and I think uh, one of the really interesting things about raising investment and sp- talking about connected and being transparent, you know, we've raised now just shy of 10 mil and we've got, wow. you know, a, a really, really good, great group of investors who who are, have been amazing to me. But the reality is when you're a founder of that company, you now have two organizations to manage. You have your internal organization, which is for us, 75 people um, in, in a few different locations. Um, and you have a lot of upward pressure uh, in the way that we all do and, and customers and clients and uh managing employees and egos and um, personalities and, and all those those parts which genuinely are amazing when it comes to running a business. Yeah. But then you have your external organization, which is your shareholders as well, where you've got lots of downward pressure. So mm. being the CEO of that company is not being at the top of the company. It's being in the middle of, of so you know, two organizations in that way. But, but again, that's why I think it's so important to be transparent about these things and have these conversations because I know so many people who have had an amazing idea, raised a load of money and not realized what that actually looks like in terms of then um, you know, management structures and and, and pressure. Uh, and that's why it's important to, to try and educate. Mm, and that's what you're on a mission to do. So yeah. That's why you got to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my next question for you is, what are you proudest of? Oh, I am proudest of the way my business gives back. It's one of my biggest values is kindness mm-hmm. and just doing good. Like I really, really believe 
if we can run a business that does good and feels good, mm-hmm. like, wow, like we've won. And that for me is one of my biggest measures of success is like, yes, you know, I need to pay my bills and have an impact and blah, blah, blah. But like, I want my business to be kind mm. to the people that it, you know, helps to the people that help me to run it, everyone involved. And so something, I mean, there's a few ways I could look at it here, but I think one of the things I'm most proudest of is I do an International Women's Day campaign every mm-hmm. year um, where I basically give away over 100 hours of my strategic wow. support and of um, like different offers within my business. I started it five years ago now, and I think there's been over... 400 women um, come through it and kind of it's it's basically for anyone that couldn't otherwise access support like you know having someone to work with you one-to-one or a course or a retreat whatever it might be just looking to give those people some access yeah Um, and yeah I'm really proud of that because I just think yes it's great making money off the clients that pay but actually if I can have a bit of a Robin Hood vibe here and take some money from them that then allows me to do a ton of work for free like that's what I'm proud of when I'm falling asleep at night and I have the good thoughts. Yes. Those are the thoughts that go on in my head. That's incredible. That's something absolutely to be super proud of. Thank um, you. No, no, really, really amazing. Um, is there anything that scares you? Not being um, successful, mm. but it's, it's not successful. The actual thing for me is not amounting to something significant. Mm-hmm. I'm so I don't even know what that looks like. That's that's how deep the fear sits, I think. Yeah, um, yeah just no, just feeling like I haven't done what I wanted to do. I measure my worth and identity so much on my output. Mm. And I know that's not healthy. Yeah, it's I've tough. I've spoken about it for many hours in therapy and no one's managed to fix it. I don't think it'll ever change. <sighs> I manage it. But yeah, I'm just really, really scared that in... Mm. I just don't want to look back and think, oh, I didn't, I didn't do it. Mm. I, I think one of the most brutal things about entrepreneurialism, and ultimately I think we're all trying to fumble away through lives, making up for various things that we didn't have growing up, I guess. Mm. But it's almost like uh, one of the things that, that scares me on, on that side is, because I think every entrepreneur is the same, unrealized potential, right? That's terrifying. Not being able to hit the goals that you might hit. But does it fundamentally come down, and this is, this is getting a little bit deep, but does it fundamentally come down to our idea of being good enough? And if we do achieve that sense of being good enough, does that then destroy our drive to have this external validation and push in that way? And in many ways, is that the name of the job? Yeah, I think so, slightly. Mm. Like, what is it? I think it's Gary V. Not I'm neutral on Gary Vee, but good example of, I think he says like his big thing is buying some sports team in the US. Okay. I don't know, yep. sports teams, whatever. And he's always said the day he does that will be like the saddest day of his life because that's when kind of the chasing mm. stops. Um, so yeah, I think I realized for me, like that's an okay thing yes. to be super, super driven by. I think really the more I reflect on it, my bigger fear within that is is less so looking back and thinking I didn't achieve and more so looking back and thinking I didn't enjoy it. Mm. I think I'm realizing now, only now, seven years in, there's never an end destination mm. with business. I think the closest you'll get to it is selling a company, right? That is a somewhat of an end point. Yeah. Um, but even then you go on to do another business, right? Absolutely. So like, it never really ends. And I think I look back at even the few years I've done in business and think I probably could have enjoyed that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, then obviously the question comes up of what does that actually look like? Because yeah. my brain is always thinking, what could I have done better? What's next? I think self-celebration is a, a concept that's easy to talk about, very hard to do in practice. Mm. But 
yeah, I'm also a bit scared of that. That I'll look back and think, God, you worked really, really hard and did you enjoy it? Yeah, I think it's a, a such a good point to make and a really, really important one because, you know, I sold my first company at 26 and mm. it was so empty. It was, don't get me, really? I mean, it was, it was satisfying. It was fulfilling from a commercial perspective, of course, but I'm so grateful that I had that experience because it taught me that it can't just be about the goal of selling the business and you ha you have to enjoy the journey yeah. because otherwise you get to that. And, and you know, some, some people will make it till 60, 70 years old pursuing that. Some people will, will never achieve that. So in many ways, uh, I feel a big part of my responsibility is to educate on the fact that if you're not enjoying the journey, you need to change the journey because it's, it can't just be about the end point. And if you were to sell your current company, do you think that day again would feel as unfulfilling or do you feel like you've changed since in a way that wouldn't lead to that same empty feeling? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, and for sure, you know, the, the goal of this company, it will be a successful company if we sell it, right? Um, but for sure, the um, enjoyment now is at running the company rather than the anticipation of selling it. And I think that's the the big thing that's changed in my mind is learning to enjoy running the company and loving the roller coaster rather than it all being about this end point. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a really interesting one. Okay, I've got a last question for you, Alice. Fifth, you sort of answered it early. You sort of answered it earlier, but we'll, we'll see if we get a different answer this time because um, you're a year younger. So 15-year-old Alice walks into the room right now. What are you going to tell her? I just want to hug her. I feel really sad thinking of my 15-year-old self because she thought that the way she felt then was like everything. Mm. And I remember at 15, I was really struggling with kind of the social part of school. I I've, I've wasn't like bullied or, you know, had friends, but I just remember I was so overwhelmed all the time. Do these people like me? Am I accepted? Am I good enough? Am I this enough? And I was so... Feeling like that was just going to be my whole life. And I was in friendship groups that maybe weren't the best fit for me. And even kind of in an academic sense, I felt like I was trying to make everyone happy, getting the best grades I could, being as perfect of a child or student as I could, but just never quite feeling good. Mm. And I, you know what it's like when you're a teenager. And maybe this is, I'll look back and think this way about me now, probably. But like, it feels all consuming. And I remember thinking like, this is my life. <laughs> I am just sad. I am anxious. I had quite bad social anxiety at the time, so I didn't mm. really kind of stretch myself in any way. And now I just wish I could go and hug her and be like, just take a chill. Like, you're going to get to do some pretty cool things and you're going to have some amazing friends and feel a lot better. Um, you'll find your worth in ways that actually do feel fulfilling to you. So, yeah, I don't think I'd tell her to do anything different. She did exactly what she needed to do, which was probably not really love life and therefore quit school and try something yeah. different. So I don't know that I'd really want her to be any happier, maybe, but I'd just be like, you're all right. Chill out. I think I felt like I was, I was trying to be an adult when mm. I was 15. Um, but I bet I'll, I'll look back when I'm 35 and go, oh, my little naive 25-year-old <laughs> self. She thought it was everything, but maybe that's life. Yeah, 100%. I think you're right on that one. Okay, Alice, what do you want to plug? Oh, question that's the one question I didn't have an answer to um my podcast is my favorite place to show up online it's called starting the conversation um similar to this actually very much just kind of normalizing people's journeys people's experiences trying to create a space where you know my 17 year old self would have picked up something helpful or felt a little bit less alone if if people find them 
valuable in any way that to me is a, a successful episode so yeah people can go and listen to that and for me like conversations like this are first for a real honor so thank you for having me thank you for means a on. huge amount um and also just so interesting to me for then the conversations that come from it so i love a dm i love a voice note if people want to chat about anything that i've chatted about today I'm, I'm always up for it amazing alice thank you so much thank you for having me Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.